Welcome to Global Talks by Paw of Life, a podcast about redefining healthcare through a global perspective, allowing you to become informed and involved. In each episode, we deliver the best hard-hitting analysis and discussion of what is currently impacting the healthcare landscape with guests from a variety of industries. Now, here's your host, Pavan Lohia. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Pavan Lohia. And today I'm joined by Dr. Spring Cooper from the City University of New York Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. We'll be discussing some issues related to gender identity and sexual health, amongst many other things. Without further ado, please welcome Dr. Spring Cooper. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cooper. Thank you for being here. Today, I wanted to discuss a couple topics with you related to uh, gender and sexual health. A little about you um, to my audience that doesn't know you. She's a professor at the City University of New York, um, specializing in community health and has actually done some incredible work in the public health sphere, as well as the sexual and gender health issues. Welcome, Dr. Cooper. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I want to start off with uh, just getting a little background information. What kind of drove you into diving into this area of public health, sexual health issues? What was the driving force behind that? When I was in high school, I had a good friend who had HIV. and In high school, they didn't talk to any of us about having that. So when they graduated high school, they came out and said, I'm HIV positive. I didn't tell any of you because at a previous school, I had suffered a lot of shame and stigma associated with this and parents like wouldn't let other young people interact with them. So this had been fairly traumatic for this person. So when they graduated our high school and they announced this, I felt really angry that they had been through this. I was really close with them and they hadn't been able to tell me of how they would be. And so when I went to uh, Penn State the next year to start my undergraduate degree, I started volunteering at the AIDS Project. And that was just something I started to do just to like help counteract the stigma that my friend had faced. And so it was like this personal reason, you know, that became very important to me to want to try to uh, decrease stigma around HIV and other sexually transmitted infections and to increase people's ability to talk about sex, to talk about safer sex, to talk about condom negotiation, you know, all of these things. So I started volunteering at the AIDS Project and I loved it. I loved talking to people about how to have safer sex. And I loved like making condom use fun and, um, and like getting into uh, condoms for oral sex and how can that be fun? And, and so having all of these conversations with people just became, uh, kind of normal for me and I really, really enjoyed it. So I started doing more and more work in the area of sexuality and sexual health, and then ended up doing my PhD there because I just, I came to that volunteer work, you know, for personal reasons, but then found so much value in it and found that, you know, I could see the value that other people got from it as well, from these discussions. And they'd come back, we would do like test counseling with people and they would have to come back for a follow-up session at the AIDS project. That was one of the models they used. And when people would come back, you know, they would tell you about how they integrated some of these suggestions or things into their lives and like how they felt calmer, how they felt better. And it was so cool to see 
people's lives changing and to have that type of impact. So yeah, it was just like a passion that kind of kept feeding itself because it was so rewarding to me. Uh, That's kind of how I got sucked deeper and deeper into this (laughs) field of study. (laughs) So I I think just educationally speaking, so I think there's a lot of misconceptions what even is considered sexual health or gender identity. Do you think that's become more of a problem now or has this been just an ongoing problem? And I think we're just seeing it more of a hyper polarization or more of an issue because of obviously the advent of technology, social media and whatnot? Well, I think that all of these issues have always existed. And the more that we are talking about these issues, the more that they are able to come up as issues. So the more that we have any type of discussions about any type of sexuality or sexual health, the more that leads and paves the way for other discussions to follow. So, you know, I think that as we're breaking down some of these stigmas that exist around so many areas of our sexuality, that it just makes room for more and more to be able to come out. And so I think that, you know, it used to be people didn't even talk about any sex at all, like even that they were having sex. And so the more that we open up culturally, the more that there is space to air some of these concerns, to bring them to light, to actually have them be addressed. So I think that it's a great sign that we are having more and more of these conversations because it means that I think the culture is shifting and that means that people are more open. And even though, of course, we still have a lot of pushback and we still have a lot of work to do, but the fact that we are having more and more discussions, even about, you know, pronouns and having like people normalize saying what their pronouns are as they introduce themselves. So like, You could have even asked me at the beginning of the show, like, hey, this is spring and spring, what pronouns do you use today? I use these pronouns and just like modeling that and bringing that in, you know, and the more and more that we do that, it's just more and more part of our dialogue, part of what's happening around us. And so I think that we are seeing more and more normalizing of that. And even though we still have pushback, the more that we keep doing this and we keep opening it, the more room we have to keep continue changing things. Yeah, of course. And I I think, you know, just going off of that point of especially on pushback, because I think there's kind of a disconnect there on that pushback when you see like states that don't have like formalized sexual education for like K through 12 or even universities, uh, both public and private handle it. I've kind of seen that over the years, like it's not really progressed. In some cases, it's even gotten worse. Recently, I've seen states pass legislation against having sexual health programs, family planning services, and other rural communities. So do you think that's going to be more of an issue that just becomes political and they're going to kind of polarize this more? I mean, how do we combat that? Well, I wish I could tell the future. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot. But I think that it's always some steps forward, some steps back. And I think we need to try not to get discouraged with that. I think it's really important to keep acknowledging the progress we're making and then focus on how we can continue that. And, you know, this happens, I think, quite regularly that we have setbacks. Overall, I think we're moving forward, but you're definitely right that certain states are always going to be behind the curve in terms of like sexuality and things. And we know 
we see that over and over. And, you know, I think that there are some broader answers to things like this. So for example, if we're talking like abortion access, like that's something that needs to be physically in a certain area for someone to access. If we're talking about sex education, that doesn't need to physically be in a certain area, right? Like we can provide high quality scientific proven and sex positive sex ed in other forms that are freely available on the internet that people can access. Like I do that with my podcast, right? So we have this way for people to access, they can access the sex wrap on whatever device they want, you know, from anywhere. And it's a podcast. So it's right into their ears. It's not even a screen that someone could overlook and see, you know, what they're looking or what they're learning about. So there are ways, you know, with technology, and with this like global economy that we have in so many ways that we can start to address some of these concerns that have historically been problems like by problems of geography or problems of location. But that doesn't address all of them for sure. But I think that that's really exciting to say like, okay, yeah, sex ed is not great in a lot of places. And we have a lot of really bad policies around sex ed and historical legacy things still. So for example, people in the past were only allowed to get funding at their schools if they were doing absence-only education. And now we have this legacy of absence-only curricula in schools that schools might not have funding to buy new ones. And so they're just using these old ones that were funded so many years ago (laughs) that are so outdated. So we have like all of these problems, but these are things that we can get around. These are things that we can use more creative problem solving to address, but it's the things that are really geographically constricted in a way, you know, that I think are the problems that are more concerning. Those are the ones that I think we really need to stay on top of. And, you know, I'm so grateful for work by like the ACLU and organizations like that, that are continuously questioning, you know, when policies and laws are put in place and saying, wait, this is not okay, you know? Of course. Yeah. And I think that brings up another point of, I think even from growing up in like a South Asian immigrant household, I don't think sex was necessarily talked about. I think I being the youngest of four um, and having two older sisters I don't think they were even exposed to that beyond like maybe my my mom signing some school papers, but definitely even with me as the youngest, you know, I think it was so later on and it's still such a taboo issue. And I think you being a professor, you know, especially in New York City, where you are at City University of New York with such a diverse student body. I mean, how have you been able to break down some of those barriers and even change the minds of students or your own colleagues? You know, so this is kind of like my personal mission in life is to destigmatize sexuality. And I try to do that in various areas of my life, um, professionally and personally, and like with these passionate projects that I get involved with. And I think that the more conversations you have with people, even like very small things, the more people are exposed to things, the more they're going to slowly start to open up. And that can be really difficult. And the more that you practice doing that, the easier it becomes. So I'm very practiced at bringing up issues of sexuality, of gender, of orientation, of inequities around these things. So I, you know, at this stage in my life, feel very comfortable continually saying things or 
or asking people, why did they say something a certain way or suggesting, you know, how about we try this, but that can be really difficult to get to. And so if anybody listening like wants to start to do more of this in their lives, what right. I always recommend is to do it in the really easy ways first, you know, like with your right. really best friends or like with your partners, like bring up something when it's happening around you. Like when you see something happening on the street or when you watch it in a movie or whatever, like have a discussion about it with people that you feel really safe with because the more practice you have with these conversations, the easier it is to have them. And the more conversations we're having around these things, the more we're opening this up. So I think this is what I always encourage like people to do. And if we're talking about in the classroom, one of the ways that I would do that is bring up topics that are charged or polarized in some way, and then allow for anonymous comments to it. So I'm just looking for any ways to make these conversations safer and to give people practice at them. So one way I would do that in the classroom is like have people respond to something anonymously and then like pass all the paper in, or you can do that the same type of thing on like a Google form or something if you're doing it online collect all those answers and then read the answers out to the classroom, right? And then have everyone respond to them. So they don't know who they came from, but then you can open up the class to hearing opposing ideas to then having discussions about topics and giving them a bit of safety because they get a bit of protection to start to say like, okay, how can we challenge these ideas? How can we talk about them in a way that still gives me a little safety? And of course it's going to be uncomfortable. So when I say safety, I don't mean like you're going to feel totally comfortable all the time (laughs) because that's (laughs) not the way to ever get anywhere, but to give yourself a bit of safety, like you're not going to go to like the person that you're the most uncomfortable with and have these conversations first and practice them in other ways. I think the main reason I was laughing is because you said like with other faculty and I, I guess I was like, do I challenge other faculty enough? I don't know. I don't know if I do. Well, I, I, you know, I, I do think it brings up a great point. And, you know, this is why I wanted to have a conversation around it because I think it's becoming more and more part of our lives, you know, being respectful of other people's identities, you know, understanding their hardships and whatnot. I don't think that's permeated through even such a, a you know, school like CUNY or uh, like University of California, like it's coming in steps and, but there's still been some pushback. Like I dealt with it as a GSGA president to have, you know, say uh, lactating rooms available to gender neutral bathrooms. Those are real big struggles. And, you know, you turn on the news and gender neutral bathroom is a hot button issue when it really doesn't have to be. And so it becomes difficult to then at what point, you know, I try and defend it from the side of like, well, there's a public health side, there may be a medical side to it. You know, it's not just a left or right or polarized issue. So I think, and, you know, people hold on to perceptions, whether from their communities or from their education. So trying to break down those barriers and see the progress that's being made is, uh, it's kind of remarkable in a way, which kind of brings me to my next point on like gender identity and sexual health. Do you think that when people are discussing their gender identities now, that their sexual health is being impacted in a positive way or negative way, whether it's the type of resources that they have access to, or even the type of medical or public health services that they would have? Yeah, I think I worked with a student who took one of my courses about a year and a half ago, and the student developed some materials to help teach 
other CUNY professors how to be more inclusive of people that were non-binary and transgendered. And so these issues of taking into account how gender identity impacts somebody's life, there are so many ways that it impacts their life because it isn't understood by so many people around them. So that means that it's going to affect the care they're receiving. It's going to affect their sexual health. It's going to affect their learning in classrooms. Um, It's going to affect their mental health because we don't have enough inclusivity. Not everybody has the tools to be able to ask questions. And so, I mean, I would say that the main thing that people that don't have all the understandings need to do is just, well, number one, Google things, educate yourself, like do right. do your own homework. And then two, when you don't know, just ask. And so if you instead are assuming something or um, deciding something without asking somebody right. what their situation is, like whether that's their identity or who they're having sexual interactions with, or, you know, what type of protection they're using, like whatever these questions need to happen, there has to just be a little bit of humility as well. And saying like, sometimes like, I'm sorry, I don't actually know how to ask this question appropriately, but I, I want to ask you about, you know, your sexual health or something. So I think that part of it is doing more work individually. Everybody needs to do all of this work, like understanding what gender identity means, both for yourself and for other people. And then it's also having humility around it and saying like, what else can I learn? Who else can I learn from? And apologizing if you get something wrong, just like just apologizing and moving on, not making a big deal about it. For example, I met somebody last night who was genderqueer and they were talking to me and I picked up right away that they use they, them pronouns because somebody else that knew them was modeling that for me. So I was like, okay, great. Nobody has said that I identify this way or I use these pronouns, but I've picked up from these context clues. I know this person is using they, them pronouns. And so when I was talking to them, I was also using those. And then I was blah, 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 blah. And I said, she, when I was talking about this gender queer person and I caught the mistake and internally I freaked out because I was like, right. oh no, I messed up. I really don't want to hurt this person's feelings. I don't, you know, I feel really bad that I just misgendered them. But if I went into my own stuff in my head, if I would like started going, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like that calls attention to it. That like makes them uncomfortable. And so I just said, sorry, they, and just like kept talking and internally I was having a freak out and I felt so bad. And I also know that that is my stuff. That's my stuff to deal with, like my reaction to that. And I don't need to shine light on that. And I don't need to make it about me. All I need to do is say, oops, I meant this and keep talking because we know that there's no good that happens. Like the more you like apologize or like, especially people that are genderqueer or transgender and they are using they, them pronouns, they get misgendered all the time and they don't want to have to deal with (laughs) all of this apologizing or all of this, right? Just like, just correct it and move on. And so I think that's, you know, a really big lesson that for a lot of people is hard to learn. And like, and that's like, that's really humbling as well. You know, like I felt so bad that I did that. And I just had to say like, okay, great. Like, how can you continue to like change your languaging and make this more natural for 
my mouth to just say these words, even though I've done so much of this work. Right. Right. And like, I was thinking for myself, I was like, okay, maybe I actually just start saying they, them all the time about everyone that I'm talking about. And why am I even using she or he series anymore at all? And like, I don't need to do that because they, them can apply to everyone. And maybe I should just always be doing that. And so that's what I've been since last night, (laughs) deciding that if I make that a practice that I'm always using those pronouns, then also I'm much less likely to misgender someone or to make anyone feel uncomfortable, which I, you know, I really don't want to do. I really want to like model this inclusivity as well. So it's also like when something like that happens, say like, to myself, not to anyone else, but like, what do I need to do to change? How can I do this better? How can I make some little changes in my life or practice these things in another way? Yeah, I think exactly like you mentioned, uh, you know, the small changes can really make a big difference. And especially as I think, as people who are not educated about this, and as they get to learn more, but then also, obviously, the people who are part of their community, you know, how they identify, which leads me into I think like advocacy and education, you know, I think there's oftentimes like this whole misconstrued concept that it's just the LGBTQ community and whether it's in a positive light or negative light. And, you know, as we've seen in the past few months and few weeks that there's other groups that definitely have made strides in women's rights or sexual health rights, like we've seen in Texas and other states. But I think How would you kind of say to people who are not aware, like what type of organizations they should be looking for, whether, you know, wanting to learn more about gender identity issues or even find out about their own gender issues? How does somebody kind of go about that in this realm? Yeah. Well, I'm going to plug my podcast again. I think it's a great resource. So my podcast is called The Sex Wrap. That's wrap with a W. And we have also social media is at The Sex Wrap on every platform. So that's a lot of work we do is just speaking to the masses. You know, we start with like really baseline things and build from there. And we have a lot of episodes where we deal with these topics. And so I think that's a really easy way to start to do some of that work. I would say that I think there's a a lot of really high quality sex ed happening on Instagram and TikTok. Like I would say go to the platforms and the things you're already using. Like if you're someone who uses Facebook every day, like look on Facebook for that information. Wherever you are, search those terms that you want to find, like find a hashtag on like gender identity or something like that. And you're going to be able to find a lot of resources very easily. So it's kind of like, nobody has an excuse, right? To not have this information because we all have it right at our fingertips. And I think that there's a little bit of media literacy involved, like saying, okay, what's a credible resource? And that's a skill we all really need to hone, you know, as we move through our lives. (laughs) But I think that for example, if you're thinking about Instagram, Twitter, we have like some things that are verified now. Like that's one clue. Of course, verified doesn't mean that someone is super credible, but it can mean like, okay, we've checked this out a little bit. Um, You could also look for organizations, you know, have a lot of accounts that are giving information, um, nonprofits, and you can 
Um, you can Google anything that you find that you think seems credible. Google it, see who's behind it, see you know, what scene might be behind it. And I think that's also good practice to start to say like, okay, I want to look for information. I'm going to use the platforms I'm familiar with. And then right. let me see who's putting this out and let me check that out a little bit and decide if that's a resource I, I want to like stay <laughs> involved with and learning from. But I would really encourage people to like do some of that on their own because there are so many great people doing it. And it's not only organizations, it's individuals, you know, like I know that there are people just like making a living on TikTok now doing sexual health advice. And it's like, it's so cool. It's people that, you know, like have maybe just a lot of personal experience or have like a lot of friends that are having different experiences and they're able to share all of these different perspectives. And I love that these platforms have given voices to people that might not have had a voice in another time, right? And now we can get this range of perspectives and we can hear from other people very easily and we can start to understand what their experiences are and how they shape them and how we should be able to learn from those. Yeah, of course. And just a little intro about your podcast for those of who are listening or watching. Um, her podcast details and her social media, Dr. Cooper's, will be in the description at the sex wrap and also her social media links. But On that notion also, you know, when you're bringing up social media, do you think like that also has hindered some effects? You know, obviously there's been some recent issues, like whether it's uh, Hollywood or even the news networks. Do you still think that's like the best avenue versus, you know, verified sources? Yeah, I mean... I think everything has pros and cons. <laughs> um, and, you know, we know that spending too much time on social media can negatively affect your mental health. But also, all of these things are dependent. Like, none of them are totally true or totally false. So, for example, if you are really careful with what accounts you follow and what you're choosing to look at in your social media, then then when you open it and scroll through, you could have only positive messages coming at you. You know what I mean? So it's not like everybody gets tons of negative messages when they open their Instagram. I have unfollowed anything that ever makes me feel bad in my, (laughs) in my account, for example. So it's kind of like, we have to be savvy about how we use anything, whether it's social media or Wikipedia or whatever. So there is some skill behind that. And I think that's something that we really need to work on. And, you know, like grade school is like really teaching media literacy, really teaching people to be critical of what, they're consuming and critical of images and critical of what Hollywood is saying is the norm because we consume so much media, you know, TV and movies, things that we're watching are just feeding us. This is the norm. This is culture. This is what you should do. And if you are not being taught consistently to be critical of that and to question that, then just gets into your psyche. And like all of these messages are being bombarded. They're being dumped into your brain and you are taking them all in and you're constantly then being affected by them. Even if you feel like, oh, I don't believe that. I don't think that the messages still get in there. And sometimes you think you're thinking your own thoughts, but you're actually thinking culture's thoughts because they've been put in there so much, right? Absolutely. So it's kind of like this constant critical nature we need to take to even to what our own brain is telling us, right? And say like, okay, do I really believe that? What else 
could this message be uh, telling me or who else could be kind of putting this in my head? And how do I want to respond to that? How do I want to respond to that thought or that thing that's coming up? Of course. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously living in your own silo and, you know, kind of constantly compounding yourself with what you like to hear and stuff, it, you know, like you mentioned, has its pros and cons. I think there's been a lot more positive things for the LGBT communities, you know, sexual health, gender identity issues. But I think now as we kind of move into newer and newer times, what do you kind of see in the next five, maybe 10 years? What are either some of the challenges or some of the real things that you'd be hopeful for to see a change? Because I, I think, you know, the other point I wanted to quickly touch on was I think it's our society here in the United States, you know, when I compare like European countries, for example, Denmark has a children's show around addressing sexual health. And when that first came out, it wasn't as widely received, but now it has become part of that and it's normalized. But I think here, you know, given our different systems and whatnot, where could we kind of see these issues going in the next decade or decade and a half? Yeah, you know, I think that, we'll see more and more fluidity. So we talk about like identity being a continuum and orientation being a continuum. And that also that they're not fixed. I can identify as heterosexual. I can identify as bisexual. I can identify as pansexual. And these things might change over time, right? So as we start to think about fluidity across all aspects of relationships around sexuality, around who we are. And then like simultaneously, like thinking about these, like our multifaceted identities and all these different parts of ourselves. I think that we'll start to see like the broadening of this, because I think we've already come so far. Like when I start to think, you know, about even like these issues being shown in TV shows and movies more and more. And we're seeing more people who are trans in as characters and non-binary characters. And that's so important for people to be able to see that in the media, right? And to be able to identify with that. And so I think we're seeing more and more shifts, but I think that this like idea of not only the continuum, but that like people can move through this continuum and that that we are not fixed and that a lot of things impact whether I feel comfortable expressing my full self, whether I understand my full self, whether I am able to be that full self, like there's internal factors, there's external factors, and that all of these things shift and that your experiences shape you. And that as you have new experiences, then these things can also shift. And it's not always in one direction. It can be in multiple directions and can be multiple things at one time. And I think we'll see more and more acceptance of fluidity. I think that even though the continuum has gotten a little more, I would say like airplay and people are starting to maybe understand that a little more. The fact that we are fluid as humans, I think still is emerging. And I think that I hope that, you know, in the next 10 years, we will see people just more as people. And also like, we don't have to put people in a box. Like, why does it matter if I am identified as bisexual or pansexual? Like also- Like, why do you need to know my sexual orientation anyway? Like, unless you're flirting with me and you want to know if I'm interested in you, you actually don't need to know that, right? So I think that this fluidity will hopefully start to become broader so that we're not trying to say, okay, 
I know you, I'm, I can put you in this box, but we could say you're an amazing person. I value all these things about you. And that's what I would love to see. That's what I hope we will see more and more of. Of course. No, I think, you know, just us talking about this, I, you know, I covered a whole bunch of issues and a, a wide variety of topics just within it. And so, you know, it's, uh, while it's easy to say like, oh, gender identity, sexual health, there's so much more to it, you know, with, from public health aspect, to individual rights and issues. I think it's, it is very important that more conversations happen, plus combined with education and, you know, changing also just the status quo and, the stigmas around it. And I'm very hopeful both uh, here in the United States and also globally, because I definitely have seen other countries that, that have had issues with it and, you know, gone the other way instead of progressing forward on it. So it's best to keep at it. And uh, I would also think that more and more people will also become advocates and not just members of the, their community as well. So even just, yeah, getting to know, just like you mentioned, uh, time and time is finding out, you know, making yourself knowledge, you know, we do pull up so many resources at the tip of our fingertips and we're not learning some of these things that, you know, we might not be knowing if we're interacting with somebody who's having a gender identity issue or is going through that, you know, just making us more aware. So. And I would say, have these conversations with people that are older than you as well, because it's the older generations that are less likely to have this information presented to them or to like have it come up more daily around them. I experienced also last night, this is a totally different situation, but also last night, this person was talking to me about like issues of consent and touch. And they said to me, well, you know, I'm from an older time and this person was maybe in their sixties. And they said, you know, I'm from an older time and like, we don't need to do that. But I understand that more people are sexually assaulted now. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, So yes, a lot of people have been sexually assaulted. A majority of people have been sexually assaulted and that's not really dependent on age. But what I was realizing was to that person, you know, first of all, they might've experienced sexual assault and might've minimized it or might have discounted it or might've, you know, denied that it happened because of the culture that they grew up in and because of those values, but also just realizing, you know, how different attitudes can be as someone 10 or 20 years older than you. And, and, you know, not assuming that they have the same understanding that you do and then starting to open up those conversations and starting to say like, okay, why do you think that it's not important for us to then have this conversation about touch? Like, and I, I would really encourage people to do that with maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your aunts and uncles, maybe it's just, you know, friends that are older than you, but these are the people that need some trusted resources to help guide them through that and to help them learn these things. And they're not going to get as much exposure as younger people are. They're not going to be seeing it in their social media feeds and things as much. So that's where I would really encourage people to start to do that work in your personal lives. Of course. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Spring Cooper, for helping me unpack these issues and discuss them at large. I'm sure this is going to be very exciting for those of us listening for more information on her podcast, it's at The Sex Wrap, and you can find Dr. Spring on social media, also at Dr. Spring C. You'll find all that information and some more information about her in the description of this podcast. But thank you for being here and really appreciate you sharing this knowledge and thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining this episode of Global Talks by Pav Life. 
with Pavan Lohia. Make sure to visit pavlife.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast and read the Pav Life blog. For perspectives and news on everything healthcare, you simply can't get anywhere else. Share your thoughts on the show by rating the show and by connecting with us on social media. Thanks for tuning in. See you in the next episode.